Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part two on pancreatitis. And we left off here talking about pancreatic necrosis, commenting it's the lack of glandular enhancement. And it's one of the most critical things where CT plays a major role. You can see there's an older scan, but you can see even on this study, just to show you, we've always been able to see decreased glandular enhancement. As scanners got better, we appreciated it more. We appreciated the extent and can quantify. So in this case, there's marked inflammation, and the only really good enhancement is near the tail of the pancreas and a little bit in the head of the pancreas. So here it's really significant necrosis. This case also makes the point that unless you have IV contrast, it's impossible to diagnose pancreatic necrosis short of seeing air in the gland, which is going to be less than 20% of cases. We talk about the extent and the inflammation. We talk about the glandular necrosis and the inflammation in the peripancreatic tissue, as you can see very nicely in this example. You can see also the involvement of the duodenum and extension toward the patient's um, colon. You also can see extensive involvement, in this case, to the transverse colon. In this example, you can see air within the necrotic tissue. I said about 20% of cases, and when you see air, it's necrosis. It's abscess formation. Now, you can get theoretically a fistula to bowel or stomach and see air, but when you see air, a case like this, this is pancreatic necrosis. This is aggressive management going to be necessary. You can see in this patient, the entire gland is necrotic. There's no viable gland left. It's a large fluid collection with an air fluid level. This patient has a very, very high mortality chance, even with extensive pancreatic necrosis. You look at examples like this, the inflammation beyond the gland. There's lack of glandular enhancement except for a little bit of the pancreatic head. And you see inflammation in and around the gland, in the mesentery, tracking downwards, tracking down to the pelvis, in the left upper quadrant. And again, of course, the cases with air. Very impressive. Sometimes it's minimal air. Sometimes a case like this with two-thirds of the gland it has air necrosis. We talk about the complications of pancreatitis, and we always speak about pancreatic abscess. And again, as we said, when you see air, it's an abscess. Sometimes you don't exactly see air. You see this mottled fat density. To me, that's always an abscess. And when you start seeing, even on an old scan, this mottled appearance, we're able to call it even then a pancreatic abscess. And again, here it becomes trickier. You see the inflammation here, but you scan a little bit lower, and there's a fluid collection, air bubbles. This is a pancreatic abscess. Now, when we look at the fluid and the area around the gland, we also look at density because hemorrhagic pancreatitis is typically high attenuation. Now, it used to be felt you need to do non-contrast CTs to recognize hemorrhage, but the fact is with IV contrast, you still recognize the high density. Sometimes you see active bleeding. Most of the time, you don't. Hemorrhage into a pseudocyst or hemorrhagic pseudocyst, as you can see very nicely in this example. We look carefully for the site of bleeding, and with the newer scanners, we can pick up the small pseudoaneurysms, but sometimes you won't see them. Again, this is often a surgical emergency. If you see a site of bleeding, the patient will go to angiography. Sometimes if you don't see a site of bleeding and the patient's dropping the hematocrit or there's a large enough bleed, patients will either go to endoscopy, depending on where it is, or directly to angiography. And again, it's a very important diagnosis. Hemorrhagic pancreatitis is associated with a very, very high level 
of uh, patient morbidity and mortality. And just very, very nice examples showing you how when you narrow the window, you can easily see the areas of hemorrhage. Now, in that hemorrhage, we talk, of course, about vascular complications. As I mentioned, the splenic artery was the most common zone for pseudoaneurysms. Splenic vein is the most common vein involved. The portal vein thrombosis or occlusion can occur. Classic example of splenic artery aneurysm. These needs, or in this case, a pseudoaneurysm. Splenic artery pseudoaneurysms need to be embolized because if not, they can easily bleed, as in this case, they can rupture. This patient was very lucky. They went directly to surgery. This was resected. This patient could have bled to death. It's very easy to go from a one or two centimeter pseudoaneurysm to very extensive bleeding. Sometimes if you didn't give IV contrast, you can imagine in this case, you would have thought this was a pseudocyst. And in the past, patients have had catastrophes where they assumed it was a pseudocyst and it was in fact a pseudoaneurysm. As I mentioned, splenic artery is the most common uh, vessel involved, though almost any vessel can be involved. Hepatic artery is not uncommon as well. As I mentioned, the venous side of things, clinical presentation is variable. It can be from acute abdominal pain to subacute pain to just an incidental finding on CT. We can see focal portal vein thrombosis in this patient with pancreatitis, or in this patient with chronic pancreatitis, portal vein occlusion and cavernous transformation of the portal vein. Now, my experience is that the longer or more frequent episodes of pancreatitis, the more likely you ought to get vascular complications, and that's particularly true with portal vein thrombosis with cavernous transformation. Another nice example here, large pseudocysts, multiple collateral vessels, or this case as well, collateral vessels, cavernous transformation of the portal vein. As I mentioned, in this patient and in many others, patients have repeated episodes of pancreatitis, but we're not suspecting to find cavernous transformation, but we do see it. Now, I spoke before that the patient's pancreatitis can extend to liver, to spleen, to bowel, essentially anywhere into the retroperitoneum, into the posterior metastinum. The spleen is not uncommonly involved, either by pseudocysts, which track along the vessels in the hilum of the spleen where there is no uh, capsule present, intrasplenic hematomas, abscesses, and infarcts all can be seen. Nice example in this case of inflammation. So you can see the inflammation in the lesser sac, there's fluid there, there's fluid tracking in and around the spleen. Or in this example, you can see a pseudocyst is tracking into the spleen proper. Patients who have pancreatitis with pseudocysts that go intrasplenic have an increased incidence of splenic rupture even with very mild trauma. Another example here of subcapsular fluid, or in this case, a pseudocyst tracking in the spleen. And so when I see a cystic lesion in the spleen, I'm always thinking about a sequela of pancreatitis. Now, we should also comment about chronic pancreatitis. Not uncommon. Typically, the gland might be large, though with repeated episodes, the gland can be small. We can see punctate calcifications or diffuse calcifications. We can see duct dilatation with stones in the duct. We can see pancreatic atrophy, and at times we can see a relatively small but normal appearing pancreas. Here's a nice example of chronic pancreatitis with extensive glandular calcification, and here's another example of that. 
We'll also speak how sometimes, uh, remember there's a coexistence at times of pancreatic cancer and chronic pancreatitis, and so it's often difficult to distinguish that particularly early. But then we talk about distributions of calcifications, particularly by the head, which can be subtle to suggest the mass. Nice example here of chronic pancreatitis. You can see the compression around the portal vein SMV with the extensive calcifications, or in this case with a markedly dilated pancreatic duct. Of course, these days we often consider a central IPMN, or could there be a prom proximal mass causing obstruction? But again, when you see the calcifications, as in this case, and the history, you're typically talking about chronic pancreatitis. Just a very, very nice example of that. A couple other examples, portal vein thrombosis and chronic pancreatitis. You see the dilated duct, you see the thrombus in the vessel, you see the so-called collaterals, you see the dilated pancreatic duct. Or in this example, very dense calcifications in the pancreatic head, and you can see there's a soft tissue density there. We were concerned that this could be carcinoma. In fact, this was biopsied and the patient did have carcinoma in a patient with chronic pancreatitis. There are a few unusual types of pancreatitis, and I thought maybe I would just cover them here in the last moment. We talk about a very popular thing these days, autoimmune pancreatitis, which goes by many different names, from chronic sclerosing pancreatitis to lymphoplasmocytic sclerosing pancreatitis. It's unusual. It's a type of chronic pancreatitis or acute pancreatitis that are characterized by an autoimmune inflammatory process with lymphoplasmocytic infiltration associated with fibrosis of the gland. The key findings, of course, are absence of classic history of prior pancreatitis. The patient has elevated IgG4 levels. That's the most critical finding. And these patients have dramatic responses to steroid therapy. The biggest challenge with autoimmune pancreatitis is often they're confused with pancreatic cancer. It's interesting. Look at the age range. Most patients are over 50, more commonly in men, and signs and symptoms of presentation, jaundice, abdominal pain, weight loss, diabetes are all things you worry about. Now, things that may be helpful in the diagnosis, extra pancreatic processes can be seen like sclerosing cholangitis, inflammatory bowel disease, Sojourn syndrome, renal involvement, or retroperitoneal fibrosis. And the last two are things that can be very helpful. As I mentioned, when you look at this list of things, boy, this sounds often like pancreatic cancer. And we've seen a number of patients come to our pancreatic cancer clinic with unsuspected autoimmune pancreatitis. On CT, we often can be suggestive. You see diffuse glandular enlargement with loss of the lobular texture of the gland, so-called featureless gland. We can see homogeneous iso or hypoattenuating parenchyma with a non-dilated or diffusely narrowed pancreatic duct. And so where in pancreatic cancer, you typically suspect duct obstruction, here you don't see it. And another thing is what's often called a cigar sign or the halo around the gland. And you can see here very nicely in the distal body and tail of the pancreas, the low density around the gland. That is a classic pattern for autoimmune pancreatitis. And this patient was sent to us with pancreatic cancer. They thought maybe it could be lymphoma, could it be a neuroendocrine tumor. The gland is diffusely large, but you know if this was tumor, you would see dilated duct, though perhaps not in lymphoma, but the low density around the edge, that so-called cigar shape, makes the diagnosis. This patient presented with jaundice. It looks like a mass in the head of the pancreas, though again was suspicious because there's no pancreatic duct dilatation. So we suggested autoimmune pancreatitis. You can see how big the gland is. The patient gets treated, and then within two weeks, look at the gland. See how small the gland is? 
And so autoimmune pancreatitis, you treat with 40 milligrams of steroids per day for two weeks, and the gland shrinks, and you save a Whipple's procedure. If there's any doubt, it's easy enough to treat and be certain before you have a Whipple's procedure for no reason. And just a beautiful, beautiful case showing you how quickly the gland changes. So we've discussed pancreatitis. We've discussed the role of CT in triage. We discussed the importance of detecting pancreatic necrosis, the importance of protocols. We talk about how patient management is based on CT findings and how early management is critical in patient outcome. And again, focusing on the fact that CT is not necessary in every patient with suspected pancreatitis, but really in the patients with suspected or known complications, it becomes very critical in patient care and patient management. And with that, I'll stop there and thank you for your time.